goodness. That was great. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about words today. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the fun things about learning different languages is, is realizing that translation is not a one-to-one sort of science. I used to think that essentially other languages were like a code, like you just had to memorize whatever the word in Spanish was for, uh, you know, this word in English, and then you could just speak Spanish. And uh, it's a little bit like that, but as you, as you learn different languages, you realize that people who speak different languages think different ways, and there are different ways to express certain things. So, like, probably a lot of you have heard of the differences between the English word love and the way Greeks talk about love. So like in English, love has a really broad semantic range, right? We can talk about how much we love pizza or how much we love our favorite sports teams or how much we love our families or how much we love our partner or our spouse. And we understand that we don't love all of those things in the same way, right? Uh, love kind of changes exactly the sense of what it means as you, as you talk about the ways we love all these different things. Greek has a bunch of different words for those things. So like eros in Greek is the, the physical love, and philos is the sort of friendship, companionship, brotherly love. And agape is that eternal sort of unconditional love that we typically associate with divine love. Um, or take German, I, I mentioned earlier, I took German in high school, right? German has this uh, delightful habit of whenever it wants to talk about something that it doesn't quite have the word for, it just takes two words and sort of smashes them together. Uh, we do this a little bit in English, like with school bus, right? We just uh, as a school bus. And we understand that this is a particular bus that takes people to a particular place, school, right? Uh, German does that, but a lot. Like there are compound words that are like 10 individual words long in German. You just say them all and you smush them together, you get the sense. But one of them is, one of the, one of the ones that we don't really have an English equivalent for, so much so that we basically just adopted it into English, is the German word schadenfreude. And it is, uh, it's a compound word. Schaden means bad and freude means happiness. So schadenfreude is a bad happiness. Uh, it specifically is used to describe that feeling that we get of glee or joy or happiness when something bad happens to someone else. So, I don't know, say you're like out driving and there's a really aggressive driver like weaving in and out of traffic and stuff and then they get pulled over. And you're like, ha ha, uh, that's for you, right? Uh, <laughs> and you're like, you know you probably shouldn't feel it, but you, you kind of like it and it kind of feels good. And so it's a bad happiness, right? Uh, I was thinking about that word particularly today because uh, I find that particular impulse, the schadenfreude impulse, the, the bad happiness impulse, weirdly in religious spaces. Uh, there is a particular way of being religious where religious people take uh, joy or glee or maybe some kind of smug satisfaction from knowing that we're on the right side and that uh, we are going to be okay while all of those evil, wicked sinners are going to go to hell. And uh, again, I think we sort of know we're not supposed to feel that, but we like feeling that sometimes. We get, again, uh, we get the sense of smug superiority, like, ha-ha, like, they may be having fun now, but just you wait. Who see? Who will see who's laughing in the end? And again, when you say it out loud like that, it feels pretty ugly, 
but it is something that I have encountered again and again and again. I see it in, in social media commentary. I've experienced it in churches with folks uh, when we're talking about people who are not a part of our community. I've seen it, uh, you know, in my own spirit from time to time. And it's something I want to talk about because what, what we're going to see today in the book of Acts is that it, that whole way of that schadenfreude kind of faith uh, actually grows out of a wrong understanding of who God is, uh, who Jesus is, and what Jesus' life means for us. And so what I hope we're going to end up, where I hope we're going to end up today is in a place where our understanding of the goal of faith and of the role of Jesus in our lives and of our role in the work of Jesus is going to be really changed to the place that we understand that God is inviting us not to judge the world or to condemn the world, but to love the world the way God loves the world. And so we're going to begin by singing some songs together and praying together, uh, and then we're going to move into looking at some scriptures and talking through that. But uh, I, I just want to say thank you for being with us today, whether you're here in the building with us or joining us online. Uh, we're glad you're with us, and we want to invite you to participate fully in everything we're doing, beginning with our first song. So I'm going to hand it over to Nathan and to the worship team, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Uh, during our Eastertide series, we have been hanging out in the book of Acts because we have been exploring what it means to be reconnected to our source of life and hope uh, through the power of Jesus' resurrection. And I'll say personally, one of the things that has really hit me during the series in a way that it hasn't before is how much time it took Jesus' disciples to learn uh, what it means that Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and we're going to see that really specifically today. Uh, we, saw, we saw it some last week when we saw that, you know, there was that 50-day uh, that period that we're in right now between the resurrection on uh, Passover and then the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when the disciples didn't know what to do, particularly after Jesus ascended to the throne of heaven. And they had, they had that 10-day that period where they had no idea what to do, and Jesus just told them, uh, stay and wait. And so they did. They went back to Jerusalem, and they waited together, uh, like we're doing here, meeting together, praying together, just kind of waiting together for God to, to, to do something. Uh, today, we're going to look at the big adjustment in their perspective that took place. And, and when I, you'll see what I mean by that, but it's, it's particularly this shift from being worried about themselves and what God's plan for them was and becoming the kind of people that could be focused on the world around them to the extent that everything they did became focused on what God was doing in the world and how God was inviting them to be in the world and to love the world. Uh, so if you have a Bible, turn with me over to Acts chapter 1, and you'll see, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, if you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on page 654, and uh, please keep that, consider that a gift from us. As you're turning to Acts 1, uh, you may remember, especially if you were here during the season of Lent, we talked about the, the expectations that many of Jesus' followers, not just the original 12 disciples, but many of his followers had about him being the Jewish Messiah. That they had this very nationalistic fervor about them when they went to Jerusalem the week of the Passion. Uh, that they expected Jesus was going to conquer the enemies of God and drive them out of Israel and restore the kingdom of Israel and put Israel back on top. 
Uh, again, it was this very jingoistic, nationalistic assumption that they had about who Jesus was and what that meant. And it was why Jesus' arrest and crucifixion was so devastating for them. Because they were certain that when push came to shove, when, when Jesus was faced with the might of the Roman Empire, he was going to summon the armies of heaven to his back and he was going to conquer them and drive them out. And instead, he allowed himself to be arrested. He actually told the disciple, one, you know, Peter did pull out a sword and try to fight, and Jesus rebuked him. He said, put that away, that's not what this is for. So even the one guy who actually did try to fight for him, Jesus said, don't do that. He allowed himself to be arrested. He did not speak up for himself when he was on trial, and he allowed himself to be crucified and die. And the disciples could not understand how their proud military conqueror could have lost, could have been defeated. And so that, they scattered, they abandoned him, they denied that they even knew him, they betrayed him. But then Jesus was raised from the dead. So that has to mean something, right? And, and it does. And I want you to hear in Acts chapter 1 what they think that means. Uh, so remember, if you remember last week, the first 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus keeps showing up and meeting with them and teaching them. And so you're going to hear, hear this question that they apparently, according to Luke, asked him over and over and over, sort of like a kid in the car saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? Right? That's kind of the attitude that, that they have. So here, this is uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 6. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? It's the same question that they were asking him before he got crucified. They're saying, oh, okay, so we thought you lost on, at the crucifixion, but you were raised from the dead, so that must mean now it's time, right? Like, now you're going to free Israel from the oppressors. Now you're going to drive out Rome. Now you're going to take the throne of David and restore the kingdom, right? Now is the time? Is now the time? And I understand this impulse, right? Especially from the apostles, the, the original 11 plus the guy they got to replace Judas, right? So this group of 12 guys. Because when they were following Jesus, we actually see several times throughout uh, the gospel stories where they sort of pause to wonder uh, what they're going to get out of this, right? There's one story uh, where a wealthy man comes to Jesus and asks how he can follow Jesus. And Jesus says, we have to sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the guy doesn't. He leaves. He's, he said he's, uh, the scripture tells us he was very sad because he had so much money, and so he left. <laughs> and then the disciples go, uh, well, hey, Jesus, uh, just uh, I'm sure you know this, but we all did that. Right? We all did leave everything we have and follow you. So uh, what, what do we get for that? There was another time when uh, they're headed to Jerusalem. And two of the disciples, James and John, they're brothers. In one story, they go and ask Jesus. In another version of it, they send their mom. Uh, you can, I don't know which one is more likely, right? But uh, they ask Jesus, hey, when you come into your glory... Can one of us sit at your right and one of us sit at your left? And when the other disciples hear that they did this, they are furious that they didn't think to ask first. And it causes this big fight. 
about who is actually going to get, a, to, to get to be at Jesus' right and his left when he comes into his glory. And what none of them realize is that Jesus' glory is the cross. And the two who are on his right and his left are two other insurrectionists who were crucified alongside Jesus because none of his disciples could be found because they had all abandoned him. And so we see this impulse throughout the Gospels with the disciples as they're following Jesus, wondering, what are we going to get out of this, right? What is our reward for following this guy? We gave up everything. We are functionally homeless. We're depending on the mercy and the provision of other people. So surely, surely there's going to be some kind of payoff for this, right? When he reveals himself as the Messiah and conquers our enemies, frees Israel and makes us great again. Then, then is when we get the payback for all that we've been suffering. Uh, I see this in churches too. I mean, I mentioned that earlier, right? But, but there's, this, uh, there's this impulse, there's this understanding of faith that uh, Christians don't get to have any fun, you know, because Jesus has all these rules for us. And it's not actually great. Faith is kind of boring, but we have an unbeatable retirement package, right? So if you just kind of suck it up and be good and give up having fun for now, well, then you get to go to heaven. And, and so there's this, uh, there's this sort of smug condescension that comes when a lot of Christians regard people who are outside the church, people, uh, sinners, you know, and it's like, well, you can have all your fun now with your drugs and sex and rock and roll, but we'll see who's laughing in the end. <laughs> and again, what's behind, what's behind that attitude is this um, belief, this conviction that Jesus is actually not that great. That life with Jesus is not something anyone would choose without a pretty big carrot or a pretty big stick. It actually reminds me of one of the parables that Jesus tells. It's, uh, we call it today the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard it in some version, right? But uh, a man has two sons, and the younger son, who's entitled to you know, less inheritance and all of that, comes up to his father and says, can you cash me out? I'm done with this family. And the father does. He gives, he, he gives the son his inheritance. The kid leaves. And it says that he goes and he spends all of his money on alcohol and prostitutes. He ends up destitute. Uh, he decides he's going to go back and throw himself at the mercy of his father and ask if he can be not a son, but a slave in his household. Because even the slaves in his father's household lived better than he was living once he ran out of money and found out he didn't have any real friends. And so he goes home, and, and we love this story because when he comes back home, he can't even get his big apology speech out of his mouth before his father scoops him up and gives him a big hug and like drags him back in and throws this huge party, invites all of his neighbors and says, my son who was lost is now found, and he's come home. And we are like, that's beautiful, and we love it. And, and unquestionably, it is a beautiful picture of God's love. We love this attitude that God has towards uh, people who are outside the faith who come home, right? It is, it is unquestionably beautiful, and it's one of the great stories of the scriptures for a reason. We often forget that Jesus told that story to a bunch of religious leaders who were angry that Jesus was spending so much time with sinners. 
They thought if this guy's really a godly guy, he wouldn't be having so much fun with them. He would be over here miserable with us. Because there's another character in the story of the prodigal son. It's that older brother, right? The one who didn't leave. And there's a point when the father is at the party that he has thrown for this younger son who's returned, and he looks around and he realizes his older son isn't anywhere to be found. So he asks, hey, where's, you know, where's my older son? And they say, oh, he's out working in the field while there's a party going on. And so I just want to read to you the, what happens when the father goes out, much like he went out to get the younger son, right? He goes out to the older son and says, hey, there's a party happening. And I want you to hear how the, young, how the older son responds, because I think you'll recognize the same impulse that we've been talking about. Here's what the older son says. This is in Luke 15, 29 and 30. The older son replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrated by killing the fatted calf. You can hear the spite in his voice, can't you? The condescension. And more importantly, you can tell that it seems as though he would have actually rather been spending his money on prostitutes than working at home with his father. He said he was a slave. Right? That doesn't sound like work you enjoy, a place that you want to be. And so we see that apparently the older brother did not stay in the father's home because he genuinely loved to be there. It was because he was holding out until his old man died and he'd own everything. And then he could do whatever he wanted with it. He didn't actually enjoy being with the father. And so he's angry when the younger son comes back and is celebrated. He thinks, well, if that's how you treat sinners, I don't know why I was wasting all my time being good. And I can't help but hear that same echo in the disciples' question. Lord, now is the time? Now is the time when you finally punish all of those people that crucified you? Now is the time when you punish all of those people who have oppressed us? Now is the time when you finally put us on top and give us the reward for all of the time we wasted following you around? Now? Jesus has an answer for them, but I want to wait there. I just want, I just want to pause, and I want, I want to return to worship, because I want to ask if we really love Jesus, if we really love the life that he offers us, this life of sacrifice, this life of dying for your enemies rather than fighting them. Do we really believe that this is the way to the good life? Or are we, you know, just sort of putting up with it for the retirement plan? Are we following God because we genuinely love God? Or are we just afraid of the stick of hell or chasing the carrot of heaven? And I think that's something worth pondering as we, as we sing another song. So Nathan, if you and your team would take it over, I'd like to invite you to stand with me again.
so in this, in this, uh, in this story today, in this, uh, where we're looking at the disciples' response, we're, we're obviously looking at a transition here, right, from their self-focus and, and asking, how does faith benefit me and mine, to a focus on the world around us. Um, and, and again, it's one that once you get basically to Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls, uh, you see the, the disciples as a radically different people with a completely different focus, uh, where they're just not asking what's good for me. In fact, you find them often throwing themselves into danger uh, for the sake of communicating the good news of Jesus' resurrection to people that don't know, that haven't heard. Uh, and this is, this is where it happens. So I want to go back and look at how Jesus answers them when they keep asking this question. Uh, so again, back in Acts 1, Luke says, so when the disciples were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, we can, uh, there we go, sorry, uh, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, so again, I, I, uh, I, love, <laughs> I love that the first thing Jesus says is basically, it's none of your business, right? Lord, when is this going to happen? He's like, you don't know. Only God knows, and God's not going to tell you, right? Um, but what, is, what I can tell you, what is going to happen is the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, which Jesus has repeatedly promised them, right? We saw last week, you, you stay and you wait for this to happen. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will go out and tell everyone. And you're going to start in Jerusalem, which is the city where they were, right? And then go to Judea, which is, you know, the nation around them. The, and then Samaria, which was their next door neighbors, be like our Canada and Mexico, right? Or Oklahoma, we could even say. Um, and then you'll go to the whole earth. And that's really actually the pattern that you see in the book of Acts. The whole rest of the book of Acts is a story about how the Holy Spirit enables those early Christians who were still figuring out who Jesus is, how the Holy Spirit enabled them to take the good news about Jesus to the world. But that required a massive reorientation of how they understood who Jesus is and who God is, right? That they are not following Jesus because of what Jesus can do for them. Rather, they are following Jesus because Jesus' life is a life worth having. And it's so good that they are compelled to tell everyone they encounter and even seek out people, right? Go beyond those they have encountered and seek out people who don't know. That's such a difference, right? That, that spirit of judgment and condemnation and saying, you know, I don't care what happens to you as long as me and mine are good versus this is such a beautiful thing that I'm compelled to go and to tell. Uh, a, a couple of months ago in Sojourners Magazine, there was an article by an Ashinabi woman named Patty Car uh, Carvac. And the article was called, Why Was Noah Silent at the End of the World? And in the article, she writes about how in Scripture, a lot of different places, there are stories of people who stand in the gap between humanity and God's judgment. 
So when God told Abram that God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Abram argues with God and begs God and actually argues God. He's like, what if we could find 50 people who, who are righteous? And God's like, well, yeah, okay, like that, you know, 50 people are worth saving. And then he's like, what if there's only like 40 people? And God's like, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, 40's good, yeah, all right. And he ends up getting all the way down to five, right? And, and they don't find five, which is telling in and of itself, right? But, but it's interesting that, you know, God comes and says, here's the plan. And Abram says, I don't like that plan. And, and argues with God, petitions God. There's another, it's after the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, where, where Moses is up on Sinai, and the people all think he's dead. And so they build an idol uh, breaking the, the commandment they literally just agreed to, right? Uh, where God said, don't do that. And they were like, right, we're going to do that. Um, right after that, right? And God is up on the top of the mountain. And he's like, Moses, you will not believe what's happening. I'm going to kill them all. And I'm going to start over with you. And Moses is like, bah, what if we did not do that instead, right? And again, Moses puts himself between God and the people and argues for them. So, so this article uh, goes through all of these different people in Scripture who, when God announces judgment, they stand in the gap and they speak for these people. And their argument is not, oh, they're not that bad. Their argument is, God is good. And mercy trumps Judgment. And then she asked the question, so where was Noah? Why was Noah silent when God said, I'm going to flood the earth? And Noah's like, well, I'm going to go build a boat. Why wasn't Noah arguing for the lives of the people of the earth? And then, of course, she opens that up to us. And she says, why today are Christians so eager to talk about the end of the world? Why are we so eager to call God's judgment on people that we don't like? What happened to those role models of faith who would stand in the gap and speak up against the prophets of doom? Uh, The whole article is terrific, and we'll put links to it in in all of our socials this week. Um, I actually linked to it in the virtual beaker, if if you scan that, if you want to read the whole thing. Um, But towards the end, she ties this, this... this impulse, this judgmental impulse into the kind of Christianity that colonized and, and destroyed, right? This Christianity that said, as long as me and mine are okay, oh, we don't really care what happens to you. And if you're on the wrong side of faith, then we're justified at what we do to you, right? So I, I want to read this quote uh, from, from the end of her article as we move towards communion. I, I just want to invite you as I read this quote, as we move toward the table, to reflect on the state of your faith. Uh, how do you see those who are not a part of our faith? How do you see those who are maybe prodigal, uh, like the younger brother? How do you see those who don't know God, right? Do you, do you love them the way God loves them? Or do you look at them with judgment, condemnation, bitterness, anger? Here's the quote. The world that is created by the white colonizing church is one in which most Christians are safe. We sing songs and rely on Bible commentaries from those eras. Uh, Jim Crow and Indian boarding schools aren't that long ago. 
Uh, Ruby Bridges, that little girl who had to be escorted to school by U.S. Marshals, is only 67 years old today. And some of those who opposed her are elders in our churches. They preach in our pulpits. These are our relationships and our ancestors. And I am in no position to sit in judgment over whether they are real Christians, whatever that means. It feels good to distance myself from participation in dominating others, but it's not that distant. Not when we still sing songs about being slaves to fear or having our souls made white as snow. I am Anishinaabe and Ukrainian. My ancestry is both here and elsewhere. My inheritance is both indigenous and settler. I grew up in the church, and so that too is where my relatives are, my ancestors. I have a responsibility to all my relatives to not remain silent, to speak though my voice shakes, to argue with those who would claim to speak for God at the end of our world. Friends, as as we move towards the table, I want to invite you to interrogate the picture that you have of the God who set this table for you. Is this a God who rushes to judgment, who is quick to condemn, who threatens you with the stick of hell and bribes you with the carrot of heaven? Because if so, that's not the God that we meet in Jesus. The cross was not a speed bump on the way to conquest. The cross shows us who God really is. And it's the God who sets a table with space for everyone. A God who, in his own words, did not come to condemn the world, but came so that everyone in the world might be saved. And I want to invite you this morning to be captivated by that God all over again to sit at his table at a space that he, that he created and prepared for you through his own sacrifice because he loves you and because his life is a life worth living. And I hope you're so captivated by that life this morning that it's something that you want to share. I hope that the beauty that you find in the cross of Jesus is something that draws you again and again and again into worship here with us and to this table so that you too can be transformed and made new. Before we come to the table, I'm going to invite you to do a prayer of examine with me. I'm going to give you some questions and give you some time to reflect prayerfully on them. And uh, again, it's all about our attitude towards people who are outside the church and our view of God. And then I'm going to pray for all of us together, and then we're going to receive communion together. So here's the first question I'm going to consider prayerfully. When in the last week have I engaged those of a different faith with love and compassion?
Now, when have I looked at others with condemnation, condescension, or judgment? Think about the week that is ahead of us. When in this next week might I be tempted towards condescension and judgment? finally, how can I allow God to form me to love the world this week? Let's pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning that we might hear uh, this good news, that your life is a life that is beautiful and that is filled with hope. And it's one that is worth living, not, not later, but now. Forgive us where we have failed to see that beauty and where we have allowed ourselves to be manipulated by fear or judgment we confess uh, that too often we allow our attitude towards you and our attitude towards the world that you love to be shaped by those things rather than by who you have shown us you are in your son Jesus. And so we come to your table today and we uh, receive these elements and we pray that they would be a spiritual food for us, that in sharing this meal with you and with one another, you would yet again restore our spirits and make us a people who loves you and who just like those early disciples turn away from the false images that we have of you and of your life and recapture the joy and the love of your Holy Spirit so that we can be sent into the world around us, our cities, our states, our nation, and our world to show the overwhelming, incalculable beauty that is a life with you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us together. And thank you for sharing this meal with us. We offer these prayers now and approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus.
The night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples, and during that meal, he broke bread and gave it to them, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink, and as we do, we announce Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, Friends, as we're going today, I want to reiterate my thank you to all of you who are continuing to give here at Catalyst, and also those of you who are continuing to serve. Uh, We're really grateful that you're helping us continue to do that. Um, Also, uh, Nathan, I don't know if you know this, but last Sunday was Bethany's birthday, and we totally... this, I, should, I always know I should check Facebook before church, and I don't, but Bethany's watching, so hey, Bethany, happy birthday. We miss you. Um, so yeah, I know she hates that we're embarrassing her right now, so definitely whatever you do, don't get in the live chat and tell her happy birthday belatedly. She would hate that. Um, but yeah, sorry. So uh, just I thought of that as we were, as we were starting today. So anyway, uh, happy birthday also to everyone else who we missed uh, recently. Um, I know there's several more of you that I won't name, um, but... Uh, yeah, I, I just want to say, uh, continue to be really excited about this series and where it's going. And I know that we're not all here in Rowlett, right? We have a lot of folks on, on, online uh, who are in other places. So when we're talking about our Jerusalems, our Judeas, you know, that's different for those of you who are online and here. And so I would just encourage you, uh, we would love to hear about how you are connecting with folk and how the, the good and beautiful life of Jesus is being worked out where you are. Um, I have, many of you know, I'm a delicate flower, and I need a lot of sleep. And the last two Sundays, I have been prevented from going to bed when I wanted uh, because there were people that uh, definitely are outside of the faith tradition who have wanted to talk to me about spiritual things, right? And I'm like, oh, it is, I looked at it like I have a watch, right? Like, oh, it's, uh, it's so late. But, but those were such beautiful and, and wonderful conversations uh, that I was happy to sacrifice some sleep. And that's, that's why God made Red Bull, so... Um, yeah, so that's, it's okay, but that's, uh, we'll make it through Sunday morning, um, for those Saturday night conversations too, right? So I would love to hear how, how the good and beautiful life of Jesus is being, uh, played out in your world, and especially those of you who are outside of Rowlett, what it looks like in your communities, how you're getting to know, uh, where, what God is up to where you are, and how, uh, how you are joining in that space as well. So, uh, for all of us, I want, I would like you to invite you to stand, I want to dismiss us with a blessing. Uh, we're going to continue next week working through our uh, journey with the disciples through the book of Acts, so hope, hopefully you'll uh, return next week for that. But for now, I just want to send you with a blessing, uh, Catalyst. As you go this week, know that God is sending you into a world that God loves. Um, God does not see the world with condemnation, but this is the world that God came and died to rescue and to save. And so as you go, know that you can fall in love with the world as well by getting to know the good and beautiful life of Jesus better and better and better. And this is something that God has invited you to, and God is equipping you to do. So as you do that, the the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will be helping you to do that. So would you go and see how God is calling you to love the world that God created and that God loves? And uh, I look forward to hearing uh, how that experiment goes. Go now in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.